This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. This is your host, Charles Cook. Rocky will be joining us a little bit later should he get done with the nightmare that is immigration court today. Uh, today we have a super special guest. I'm so excited to have Alex Naraste from the Cato Institute with us. Alex, how are you doing? Great. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing awesome. Welcome to the most listened to immigration podcast in the known universe. <laughs> well, thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to be here. It's great to be here. I've, uh, just FYI, Phil has uh, got into Georgia State as well and is waiting to hear from Emory. So I think you'd be excited to hear that. Well, congratulations. Yeah, it's great for him. I mean, my, a lot of big milestones in his life recently. That is. It is. It's great having a grandbaby out there. I have to tell you that. We've talked about the grandbaby on the show, so the audience knows. Um, oh, that's great. Is it your first one? <laughs> it is my first one, and it's super exciting. Wow. And Alex, you are a long way from having grandbabies. That I do know. <laughs> uh, I, I, unfortunately, yes. I mean, I'm looking forward to it, but it's a long way it's off. It's a long way out. First well, things first, got to have kids. Now, for those of you who don't know, Alex is the uh, uh, senior policy analyst, immigration policy analyst at the Cato Institute, uh, which, as far as I'm concerned, is the premier think tank in Washington, D.C., uh, and I think it's exciting that you're there, Alex. You've been there what about three years now? Uh, just over two. Just over two. So I mean, I, I know the quality of their scholarship went up dramatically the moment you arrived there. <laughs> well, thank you very much. <laughs> so you know, immigration's kept us busy the last couple of years, hasn't it? Uh, it sure has. It's been a full. It's been more than a full time job on my end, and I'm sure it's been a huge job on your end too. It's, it's been remarkable the amount of of quote scholarship coming out of both sides. I think the real scholarships coming from the side that favors uh, uh, improving the American economy through immigration, as opposed to those who write crazy stuff. But uh, there's certainly all kinds of stuff coming out every day. You know, it's funny, Alex, about. Seven, eight years ago, I discovered uh, the, the Google Word thing where you can put in a word and it will send you an email every morning about all articles or all websites mentioning that word. Yeah, and Google Alerts. Google Alerts. You know, So I did that on immigration about eight, ten years ago. And I used to get an email every day, had one, maybe two links on it, maybe nothing that day. Today, you know, you, I, I do this every day today. I get, you know, there's 50 links to stuff on it. Uh, so there's so much writing going on. So clearly... It's a very important uh, issue in America today, uh, yet it does not seem to be rising to the level of importance in these recent Republican primaries that have been happening the last several weeks. I mean, it's, it's been an issue for some of the challengers. So uh, Roach, who was challenging Representative um, uh, Elmers mm-hmm. in North Carolina, if you recall, Elmers had said pretty much that anybody who wants to come here and get a job should be allowed to do so lawfully. There I, love be way- I love that. I love that. It's a fantastic statement. I mean, yeah. it's something that harkens back to the, the founder's immigration policy in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So she got a challenger because of that, a, guy, a fellow named Roche, who um, got handily defeated in the primary. And his big issue was um, Elmer's statement on immigration. And we're seeing this, you know, again in the Midwest and, and, and in the Nebraska race. We see the, the challenger making a lot of noise about um, uh, immigration, uh, you know, about how immigration is bad for the United States, and it just doesn't seem to be playing very well. And then on top of it, you've got the Federation for American Immigration Reform releasing this silly pledge. Oh, yes, people. yes. That, I just heard about that pledge today uh, because it's the challenger in Nebraska, the, one of the four guys running up there. He's the only one who took the pledge. And Chuck Todd on uh, the Daily Rundown on MSNBC was challenging him on it this morning, saying, what's the deal? 
Yeah, so it's an interesting pledge. It's sort of modeled off of uh, Grover Norquist's anti-tax pledge. Yes. And the idea is to oppose, it basically commits the person to opposing not just a legalization or an amnesty, but also increases in legal immigration. Oh, yeah, it was like literally to shut down legal immigration to America, which is really what FAIR and Numbers USA and CIS are all about. They don't believe in any immigration to America. Yeah, I mean, they, I mean, and, and they don't hide it either. No, I mean, they, they put this on their website, it's in their mission statements, they say it when they're online. Like, I've debated Mark Corey in several times. I saw that recently. Excellent job, oh. by the way. It's all, oh, to call you. it yeah, a debate a is really not fair. Actually, well, it was um, it was an interesting discussion. Let me yes. put it that way. <laughs> I, I thought it was pretty one sided, but he may disagree. Um, but you know, he wants to cut down immigration to about one third of the numbers um, that exist today. Oh yeah. So it is fair to call those groups anti legal immigration. Oh, they are clearly they're, they're not pro legal immigration, and many of them harken back to the anti population groups of the nineteen sixties. Uh, yeah, they, and they all trace their the, origins back to that. Yeah, and that's just the, the embarrassing thing about them, is they're all, like, funded and founded by people like John Tanton, yep. who was this population control sort of environmentalist who bought into Paul Ehrlich's population bomb, and he looked at American demographics and saw that a lot of population increase was coming from immigration. So if you want to cut down the number of people to protect the environment, that's one way to do it, is to stop immigration. And it has, you know, sadly sort of tried to infiltrate the right in the last two decades. It's really, it's interesting. So the right's being infiltrated by environmentalists. By by environmentalists who have written glowing things about China's one-child policy, um, about forced population control stuff, um, you know, forced sterilization. Um, So just a lot of, like, some of the nastier elements of the sort of environmentalist left that have fortunately faded away in the last couple years or in the last few decades but have um, sort of live on in the boards and funders of some of these anti-immigration groups. Yeah, it's really interesting to see that movement. Uh, to me, I've seen them lose power in the last couple of years. I think they had, it seems to me, their height of power was about 2010. Uh, and they seem to be being losing a little bit of control of the argument today. Yeah, I mean, I think on the state level, their peak was definitely around 2010 with the, you know, the latest Arizona law and, you know, the, the other laws in uh, Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina, and a bunch of other states. But I think their peak nationally was in the mid-90s, actually. That's probably true. Yeah. In terms the, of their impact. Ira. I mean, you don't see, I mean, in the mid-90s, you had that debate over um, Legal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act, which was partly to decrease, I mean, part of the debate was to decrease legal immigration to the United States, a decreased number of green cards, and that got narrowly defeated due to some, you know, great political plays on the Hill, so all we got was the enforcement part. But you don't see people now who are seriously talking about decreasing legal immigration who have any kind of power or control. I mean, the electorate has moved beyond that. So all the serious debate, at least amongst policymakers, is how to increase legal immigration, how to make it easier going forward. And I think it's a huge sea change uh, because, if you, if, you know, for example, look at what uh, Representative Raul Labrador came up with just this last weekend. Now, I was very disappointed in, in what I let's call the liberal left uh, immigration reform movement for just dismissing what Raul said out of hand because, frankly, it was the first common sense approach that we've heard come out of the House from, let's call it a Tea Party member, ever. 
uh, and to say, look, we, w- we will do away with the most harmful parts of the 1996 law, which is the three-year, the 10-year, and the permanent bar. And in return, we want to increase legal immigration. Yeah. Th- that should be a no-brainer starting point for a piecemeal approach. And what's even more interesting is, you know, Mark Corian of CIS, all these people, a lot of people from FAIR, all of these, uh, a lot of the congressmen who we know are the main opponents of immigration have all said that removing the three t- and ten-year bar is not amnesty. Yeah, and, and, that, and that's what's great. First, I was stunned when I saw that comment in there. I said, well, that's great it's not amnesty because that actually is going to take care of best estimates, Alex, that I have is around three million to three and a half million people. I mean, we, we really don't know, but it'll be in the millions. Well, you think about this. I, I have a parade of people that come into my office every week. My son, my daughter is turning 21, and I want them to petition for me. And then I have to break the news. Well, how did you come in the country? Well, I came legally. Mm-hmm. Well, I've got some bad news for you. So if there really are you know, 1.6 million DACA kids, you know there's a lot more U.S. citizen kids in those families. And now that you know, basically we haven't had – you know, now that we have the vast majority of the undocumented population here longer than 10 and many longer than 20 years, they have those kids that were then able to sponsor them but for the 3- and 10-year and permanent bars. Yeah, so it's one of these things that if removing those bars becomes law, we'll see a long-term decrease in the, in the unauthorized immigrant population, not because they return but because they become legal. And it will be through a method that a lot of these anti-immigration people admit is not amnesty. And I think... That is a great move. It's a great. It's a great. Uh, it's a compromise that I think everybody wins a little bit on. It's it's a win win. We're, we're not going to. The Senate bill is not going to get voted on in the House unless John Banner decides he wanted to want to be Speaker anymore. And what the heck? Let's just go for uh, it. Yeah, and I, and, and I don't think we can count on um, any politician in any party doing something that's against his personal self interest. <laughs> I think you're right about that. And so what we're looking at is there's going to have to be a compromise. This doesn't, you know, I think what I really liked about Laurel's Earl said is this is not the end. This is where we should start. So yeah. we start with the easy. Now, I understand why people who believe that a full, unconditional path to citizenship is vital. I mean, I get that. But I also see the people. I work with the people on a daily basis. I'm a, uh, you don't know this, but I'm, I'm a pastor of a Spanish congregation here, hmm. in, here in Atlanta. And the people that come to my congregation, many of them are undocumented. Many people come, everybody comes to my office, the ones that are, that are searching for immigration solutions, the non-businesses, they come to me and they say, they never say, I want to become a U.S. citizen. They never say that. They want a work permit and a driver's license. Yeah. And, that, and that's the path they want to go. And we know historically, I don't know if you've done a study on this yet, but you look at the historical trends on who becomes citizens, less than 40% of permanent residents ever become citizens. Yeah, I mean what, what we saw. Yeah, I mean what we saw since the 1986 amnesty, the people who uh, actually got that amnesty, which was a real amnesty. A real amnesty. That was truly I mean, like, so, pay us 85 bucks and here's your green card. Have a nice yeah, pay 85 bucks, sign on the dotted line, and boom, you get it. Yeah. What we saw with them is that um, by 2010, only 45 percent of them have chosen to become a citizen. Yeah, and there's multiple reasons for that. Much of it, some of it's money. Most of it is simply the inability to speak the language. I mean, many of them simply stayed in the jobs they were in or in the areas they lived where they didn't have to learn the language. And so many – I think you'll see a lot more of them over the next decade become – apply for citizenship because they can take the test in Spanish or French or Italian or whatever language they speak because they, they reach that threshold of time in the U.S. plus age. Um, but it, I think if you look historically at that – I'd love to see an historical analysis going back 
to the 1950s, I think you would typically see only about 40 to 45 percent of people become citizens. Yeah, so Jacob Jacob Vigdor actually of Duke has done a lot of work on civic assimilation over time, and uh-huh. the main the main sort of um, variable that determines that is naturalization, and he sees it about steady. You know, it, it depends on how long you're in the United States, but for people who are in the United States for like forty or fifty years, most of them do eventually become citizens. But if you compare, like you know, people who have been in the United States for ten years who are alive today mm-hmm. versus people who've been in the country for ten years in nineteen ten. It's about the same rates of um, you know naturalization, and it was a heck of a lot easier back then. Oh yeah, I mean, so, naturalization was super easy back then. It's oh yeah, I mean you just go to you just go to the court and like take an oath. And I've got my grandparents' naturalization certificates on the wall of my office, and I know they just literally went into a court, filled out a short form because I actually did a I FOIA'd my grandparents' immigration files, which oh, I would really? which is actually a very cool thing to do. You they they have that stuff in caves in Missouri. So they've got all your naturalization records, all, and it has their entire immigration history in that file, which is very cool from a genealogical point of view, but very cool from a family point of view. So I know how they did the process. Today, actually starting uh, earlier last week, you have to fill out a 21-page form to apply for naturalization. Yeah, and you know, back then you didn't have to speak English either. That's exactly right. Although my grandparents, you know, it's funny, people come in my office today, they've been a permanent resident for 15, 20 years, and they won't speak English. I, don't, I think they can, but they won't. Uh, because they feel self-conscious. I said, look, if my grandmother, who, who until her dying day at 95, spoke with a thick German accent, but spoke enough English to get by, and she didn't have any classes to teach her this stuff in the 1930s, you can certainly do it today. Now, Alex, we, we take breaks on our show, so every 15 minutes or so we're going to take a break, and we're up against a break right now. So we'll be right back on the Immigration Hour, and we'll f- go to our next topic here. Thanks, Alex. We're right back with you. Si usted tiene problemas con inmigración o asuntos que tiene que arreglar, llama a los abogados de Cook Immigration Partners. Somos en su lado. Tenemos más de 50 años de experiencia haciendo las leyes de inmigración y defendiendo a los inmigrantes. Llámenos hoy a las 404-816-8611, a las 404-816-8611 o al www.immigration.net. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verifying your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Hey, welcome back to the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio and our special guest today, Alex Naraste. Uh, now, Alex, we were just talking about this whole trend on, uh, on naturalization stuff, um, but there's another trend going on out there that you just wrote about that I find fascinating, and this, this is the movement on state-based visas. Tell us yeah. about that. What, what have you come up with? What, have you, what do you see there? So um, there's there's some movement on the state level, at least uh, thinking about it, about having a state-run sort of guest worker visa program. So one that wouldn't be run through uh, Washington, but be managed by the states. And we saw murmurs of this sort of begin in, in um, 
great detail in like 2010 in Utah. In they Utah, passed the right. law. The, 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 yeah, they, the, the, the Chamber of Commerce did a great job coming up with that idea. No, yeah, it was really it's it's a great it's a great notion. I mean, if you're worried about if the, if these people are worried about the impacts of immigration on the states, which is the impetus for all these laws, then it seems common sense that they would want to manage you know sort of their own system uh, uh, that allows migration to the state. Mm-hmm. So they they created this little uh, program, um, but of course they need to get a waiver from the feds to do it, and you know they didn't get it, so it didn't really go anywhere. But the Texas Republican Party put a um, plank into their platform supporting it. And there were a few bills that were sort of on the cusp of being introduced in Texas to try to create a state-level guest worker visa, and it, they didn't really end up going anywhere. So we decided to uh, publish a study here at Cato about it and compare, you know, lay out what states could do in that realm, what kind of powers they could have, uh, and then compare it to other countries like Canada and Australia that have uh, regional uh, guest worker yep. visa. Yeah, they, they pro- each province, province up there has the ability to accept or not accept a certain certain number of people, which has actually been very good for places like Calgary and Alberta. Yeah, yeah, it's been good for them, uh, but it's also been good for a lot of the provinces, like the Atlantic provinces, yep. that have been losing population. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them come in, they stay in the states. I believe over ninety percent of them stay in the same province in which they came in on, um, and it's just another avenue for people to go and uh, live there. Uh, and Australia has a similar program on the Australian state level, which has also had similar successes. Well, I did so not it's one more way to sort of crack that door open. Yeah, I did not. Well, I think what I really like about it is the power it gives to the local communities and the power mm-hmm. it gives to the states. Now, I, I, I would imagine that most of the southern states might back away from this, but I think Utah was very much on the cutting edge here. Utah, I've I, I had an office out there for years, and, and I have a lot of good clients out there, a lot of contacts with the state. Utah has an unemployment rate right now of 4.2%. 4. 4.2%. Mm. They are uh, My corporate clients out there, the companies that are looking for high-tech workers, they're literally robbing each other. Because they, they cannot physically get enough workers out there to do the jobs. The farms are, are begging for workers to come out to Utah. Utah is a, is, is a, is a big agricultural state. People don't realize that, but it is. Uh, they, there just isn't physically enough workers. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not an unemployment expert, but my historical knowledge is you fall below 5% unemployment, you're pretty much at the bottom of the pickle barrel, my grandmother would say. Um, <laughs> well, you're doing well. That's you're for doing sure. really well, and so you're you're not getting the kind of people in there that are unemployed or looking for work that you really want working at your company today. So for Utah, not only attracting people from outside the state, but attracting people from outside the country would be a boom to their economy. Oh, absolutely! It would fill a lot of these niches. <laughs> I mean, we, we think of it this way: like every job opening that exists that is not being filled is production that's being wasted and not utilized. Mm-hmm. So if we can get people to fill those jobs, no matter where they're from, we're making all of us a little bit wealthier in the process. And I think one of the interesting things you'd see is if there really was a state-level guest worker visa program in effect, it would be a lot of uh, states managed by you know uh, conservatives yep. and Republicans that would all of a sudden be using a lot of them. You know, North Dakota, um, Utah, uh, Texas. Uh, states like this, well, I think a lot of states like um, you know New York and Massachusetts would shy away from it. Oh, yeah, so you although the Massachusetts realignment, although the Massachusetts government has really instituted that recent initiative uh, on Im- really on an, Im- an immigration focused initiative to, to attract the best and brightest there. So you might actually but, see it up in a place like Massachusetts, which gave us Mitt Romney after all. Somebody must yeah, understand I mean, business you, you, there. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you could see it, but I think the overall trend would be that they, they would probably try to attract the people who are already in rather than uh, trying to get more. I mean, I, I couldn't see a state like California. California might do it for high-skilled immigrants, yes. but I couldn't see a state like California doing it that's dominated by the SEIU for low-skilled immigrants. Yeah, probably not. Probably not. But but how would this work? I mean, would just Congress says, okay, we're going to have X number of immigrants a year to America. Right now we know that pool is – around 675,000 people plus immediate relatives. So it's like a million people a year. Are they going to take part of those 675 and say, okay, we've got 200,000 of these are going to be for the states and we'll divvy it up by population. If you don't want yours, they go back in the pool for the states that do want them. How how Uh, do you think it would work? It could do it that way, but, you know, we need to realize that uh, Congress can do almost anything it wants with immigration. Plenary power. Exactly right. Yeah. it's a very broad uh, grant of authority, and I think so- something that was probably a mistake to grant so much power to the Fed, but it's there. <laughs> yeah, it's it's in the Constitution. Who am I to question the framers and the founders? But um, <laughs> but uh, you-, you can see it that way. You could also see um, a government guest worker visa program that exists right now, but government grants to each state a large number above that if they ask. Mm-hmm. That, that's one way that I think we could do it. We could also see a, grant, a waiver that allows states to set up their own programs with federal oversight if they want, but the feds can basically delegate that power to the state government if they want them. Well, we, we and then were, we could but, see, yeah, and then we we could see any type before. of thing. We were doing that under the old labor certification program. It was the states that, was in, that were in charge of the process of overseeing recruitment, overseeing uh, verification there was there was no qualified UX workers being rejected, and the feds would just come in and put their stamp on it. They have the feds have now subsumed that entire process and taken it from the states. But it would be easy to bring it back to the states who, who once enjoyed that authority and just say, okay, whatever you do, as long as you meet these criteria, is good by us. Absolutely, and then you allow the numbers to be flexible enough so that each state can get the numbers that they want, um, and then boom. It works. I mean, and there's so many different ways you can do it. Um, states could experiment with different ways to figure out what works best for their situation. So, I mean, it's really creates sort of the, the experimental democracy, you know, create, make states the laboratories of democracy. Well, we did it for welfare reform, and, and it worked, yeah. right? Absolutely. I mean, Wisconsin led the way on that. And I think we could see other states lead the way on how to run a guest worker visa program better. Because quite frankly, a lot of the low-skilled ones we have right now are embarrassing in that they don't work. They're terrible. I mean, the H2A, H2B programs are are basically useless for the most part and very bureaucracy-driven, so much oversight from the federal government that it's basically – I'll give you an example. Uh, We had a client, a landscaping company, that won a contract. Uh, to do a landscaping at a large facility. Uh, but they needed workers, and, and they, it was in Florida. They advertised for weeks and weeks. Anybody who showed up worked the night, worked the day, and then come back the next day. So they wanted to take advantage of the H-2B program. The H-2B program, as you know, is limited to 65,000 workers a year in an economy of 170 million workers. Yeah. Um, and they divide that into halves. So one half of the year gets 33, the other half gets 32. We submitted their application, and immigration got it the day they ran out for the first half of the year. And because the labor certification was for March 15th through October 15th, they denied it because, oh, when you, the day you want a start date, we don't have any visas left. Sorry. Okay. Change the start date to April 1. You've got 32,000 more visas. Oh, no, we can't do that. Restart the application. That's insane. 
It's, it's insane. It's insane. I mean, you got, I believe, uh, four federal agencies that regulate the H-2A visa. It's, it's insane. Uh, farmers basically have to give up their rights, their, their Fourth Amendment rights. Yep. Yep. So that uh, bureaucrats can come in and find them for any time, for any reason. It, it, um, it, it, it removes choice from uh, the, the, the farm worker themselves. Exactly. I mean, it's really just a shame. And, and really, the work, the, the, a lot of these employers aren't actually not picking the workers. And what employer in America says, no, that's okay, you pick the worker for me and I'll go with that? Because that's oh, how these and, programs work. They, they say, we need 20 guys. Okay, you go to the embassy, here's 20 guys. And you've had a broker or somebody get them for you, and you, yeah. you don't know if they're going to be good workers or not. It's something that only a messed up government bureaucracy could really perpetuate. I mean, that kind of system just would not sustain itself in a free market. I mean, to give you another example about the H-2A, um, I think it was a couple of years ago, North Carolina needed about um, uh, like a couple of thousands of farm workers, mm-hmm. and they got Americans to fill a lot of those jobs uh, before the H-2A um, numbers came in, and they got 6,500 farm workers who are Americans, and within like six weeks, only seven of them are left. <laughs> it so about one thousand of the one out of every thousand who started, Americans stuck it out uh, for for the growing season uh, and the plant and the harvest season. And we wonder why farmers are so desperate to get uh, foreign workers. It's not because they want to destroy jobs for Americans. They just it's just because of Americans are doing other things. They have better options. They, they, and that's the thing is, it's not that Americans necessarily don't want to do the job. There are other options. Now, some of those options, unfortunately, are welfare. Some yes. of those options are unemployment. Uh, but not all of them. And a lot of them just are better options for people. How many of us teach our kids? I mean, I didn't teach my kids, hey, Phil, now I, I need you to drop out of high school because I need you to go pluck those chickens um, yeah. at the factory <laughs> for ten fifty an hour. Don't, don't worry, about, don't worry about, uh, about college. Nobody tells yeah. their kids that. Nobody does. Yeah, and, and, and even if we had high school graduates picking fruit, what a waste. Exactly. Why did they get the high school degree? Exactly right. They now, could have been picking fruit for those years. And um, if, if we uh, – so it's really – it's just absurd. And, and the thing is, like, there is a wage at which a lot of Americans would go to pick things in the fields. Let's say $100 an hour would yep. we'll probably get enough labor to do it. But at that point it's not profitable anymore to pick fruit in this country so those jobs will disappear absolutely you know we we i always use this analogy how much are you willing to pay for a bucket of chicken presumably Mm -hmm. kentucky fried chicken knows exactly the maximum amount of money you will pay for a bucket of chicken and they're going to charge you that and not a penny more and so they then pass okay okay what we can charge here's what we have to make in profit here producer is what we will pay you per chicken and the producer goes, okay, did you get that for a chicken? I've got to pay X dollars an hour. And no yeah, more and then than the, and, and then the opponents will say, well, you know, free markets and capitalism, we need to let the wages re- uh, increase and raise for these uh, jobs so that, you know, they get done anyway. So we can't have immigration mess that up. But what they don't realize is the movement of labor to jobs is an essential part of capitalism. Exactly right. Exactly right. It's it's. it's, it's and it's what our founders clearly understood because there was free movement of labor in the early part of our country. It was, it was oh, absolutely. I mean, call them open borders. Call them what you want. We had free movement of labor to come here and, and, and fill up our country and get the work done. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the first naturalization law passed by this government had no restrictions on the number or types of immigrants. It was basically uh, rules on how you could become a citizen. I, I um, actually have that law that framed in my lobby. You do. I do. Oh, that's great. 1789, the Naturalization Act. That's uh, right. And it was, it, 
you know, but we've moved far from that. You know, we move far from it because of ideas of protectionism, because of ideas of no nothingness that, that imbued the country after the first group of settlers got here and said, oh, those people are different from me. I don't want them anymore. I frequently talk to people about this whole idea that we, as Americans, we have become afraid, and it's not new, we've become afraid of the new or of the other. And so when somebody comes in that's different from us, and that's, that's why you see a lot of this anti-immigration stuff coming out of the South in the last 15, 20 years, because we didn't have real non-white, non-black immigration to, Amer- to the South until about 1996. Yeah. Uh, and I then, mean, if you take a look, like the last wave of big immigration to the South, excluding South Florida and Texas, mm-hmm. Uh, basically concluded in, like, the 1840s. Yep, and so this whole idea of these new... They're moving into counties where, yeah, historically there were chicken processing plants, and they were small, and they had a lot of white workers, and the Latinos come in and, and now do those jobs because the white workers have moved to management, they moved to other jobs, they've moved away because they don't like living near a chicken processing plant, or the <laughs> kids came so educated, I'm not going to do that work anymore. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's, it's people sort of... When they have new neighbors from new places, the initial reaction, you know, passes a point, and they get really upset about it, and it sort of freaks them out. But then, you know, their neighbors settle in, and they realize it's okay. I mean, I, I was living in California as a kid when everybody was freaking out about Mexican immigration. They passed Prop 187, yep. and Pete Wilson ran his sort of scare campaign 20 years ago, which ended up killing the Republican Party. But now, like, all the people I knew from back then who were anti-immigration are now, like, fine with it. You know, they realize their neighbors are fine. They realize it's not going to change the state that much. Um, but the people who were targeted by those laws have not forgotten. That's right. Let's take a quick break here on the Immigration Hour. We'll be right back to our next segment. Si usted ha casado con un ciudadano o tiene problemas con inmigración o tiene una oferta de trabajo, llama a los abogados de Cook Immigration Partners. Somos en su lado. Con más de 100 años de experiencia en la ley de inmigración, conocemos la ley y sabemos cómo ayudarle. Llámalos hoy a las 404-816-8611, a las 404-816-8611, o visítenos al www.immigration.net. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national. Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Alex, welcome back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. Alex, by the way, America's Web Radio is being around. How many years has it been around, David? About 2005. since 2005. And they have really an eclectic collection of show. They no longer have the Chicken Man on here anymore, but they have, <laughs> they have, which was an awesome show, by the way. Uh, and our, our show is frequently referred to as the Garden Hour, since I talk about my garden sometimes. But uh, uh, the, we're really known for lots of great political shows. Uh, one of my one of my attorneys runs a great show here called Undisputed on Thursdays. Uh, but the Immigration Hour has been around since I've been doing this from two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Yeah, five years. Two thousand two thousand nine. 
Uh, and so we've got, we've got lots of stuff up on iTunes uh, with the Immigration Hour, and it's so great to have you with us. Uh, I would say Alex is our most important guest to date. Yeah, David, oh, that's, that's too kind of you David, to say. David agrees. Well, we had Angela Paparelli on, but, and Angela would say he was the most important guest, but I'm going to go with you. Well, Angelo is a great guy. You know, uh, you know, there, there's a handful of immigration attorneys whose work I follow in the United States, maybe four or five, mm-hmm. and, you know, you're right up there. And, and I love Angelo because he writes such intriguingly interesting blogs yes. and is not afraid to take on controversial topics. Yeah, uh, Angelo's work, your work, uh, Matt Colkin's work. Yeah, Matt. I find, you do you, know, do you follow three... Cyrus Mehta at all? The uh, I do so, follow his stuff. He's uh, very, he's less inflammatory than yes. uh, all you guys. Yeah, he is. He is much. <laughs> he is. He is the insightful immigration lawyer, uh, and he writes very articulate blogs about very esoteric immigration topics, uh, which are certainly worth anybody's view. Angelo, you can find at Nation of Immigrators. Uh, uh, and t- this week he wrote on L1s. And, again, this additional oversight. One of the things I've noticed about the Obama administration is whenever they do something on immigration, it's rarely good for business. Oh, and you saw this with the, uh, you know, the proliferation of H-2A and H-2B regs yep. just a few years ago that made those visas much more difficult to get. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it sort of strikes, I think, at the major disagreement between um, the left, you know, the broad left and the broad right, on immigration is a lot of the broad left is, you know, they want policies to make the people who are here illegally, you know, make it easier for them to legalize, you know, that they don't like enforcement stuff as much. While the broad right is sort of opposed to a lot of legalization stuff, they like enforcement, but they support more legal immigration going forward while the left is more skeptical of it. Right. And I think you see that really, um, you know, uh, in play when the president supports visa regulations that make it more difficult to use them, while some of the last things Bush's administration did was make those visas easier to get before he left office. Yeah, exactly right. And you look at, like, the things that Angela blogged about this week, the L-1 visas, uh, mm-hmm. which have become almost impossible in some ways to get, and yet they were designed... To be easy, simply, you go back to 2004, and 98% of L1s were approved. Today, you're looking at denial rates in the 50 to 60% range without a single change in regulation. No regulatory changes. It's just been so it's all administrative. All administrative, whether it's FAQs, and I hate rulemaking by FAQ because I think it's illegal, or simply they train their officers differently to look for different things, to deny them for reasons that I think they make out of whole cloth. And now this new idea that they're going to do, they're going to do site visits, literally show up. And what are they going to do, walk into Coca-Cola and say, hey, let me see the manager of product development. Um, at, uh, is he available right now? That's what site visits are. I want to talk to him right now. Oh, he's not here. And they go back and write a report that says, applicant not at work, workplace. And then they get a letter yeah. from immigration with an intent to deny their application. I mean, that's the crazy stuff this, this stuff does. It serves no useful purpose. It's the idea that there is fraud everywhere. We just have to look hard enough to find it sometimes. Yeah, and we need to define fraud in a different way so oh. that we can get the numbers we want. Like with the H-1B stuff, I mean, you know, there are a lot of site visits like in 2010, I believe it was, like mm-hmm. 25,000 oh, or yeah, so. Yeah, 25,000, exactly. Yeah, that that was a big deal. And one of the things they wrote a report, the GEO wrote a report and, you know, had high fraud numbers and all this. But if you dig into that report or you get some of that information, you find out that it's all junk. I mean, like to list, I mean, a a lot of things like I think it was on the the, the LCAs. Yep. 
that they filled out. They did not, a lot of these employers did not fill out the home address of the worker. So if the worker, let's say, for instance, took a conference call at 9 p.m. from home because they didn't want to stay at work all that time, well, then that counted as a violation. And it's a fraud. It was evidence of fraud, it's fraud which right. is absurd. It's just absolutely absurd. It was, and that was, th- that report, if you look at it closely, there was probably actually only a couple hundred incidences of fraud out of the 25,000 yeah. site visits, far below the fraud rate in any other government program that, that exists today. Well, yeah, and it just shows a total disconnect with what, you know, normal people recognize as what is fraud and what is not fraud. I mean, it's just understood when you have a job that sometimes you're going to have to work from home. So why do I have to put that down on a form? I mean, I don't. I have to put down my work address for stuff. I don't also put down my home address just because I take a conference call from home sometimes. It's, it's really an insane process. Now, one of the other reports you guys came out with recently that, I was, that has always fascinated me because it goes to the heart of the issue of legal immigration, this idea that we don't actually immigrate 675,000 people a year who are in the line, that, in fact, we probably only immigrate 100,000 people that are in the, quote, line because we count their family members. And because we count their family members, it's significantly reducing the ability to reduce the backlogs of the proverbial line. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, they count the, the so-called derivatives for the employment-based green cards, mm-hmm. so the, the family members, uh, the, the minor children, the spouses, um, against the quota um, that's supposed to be for workers. So, and, and the thing is, like, I've, I've talked to a few people trying to find like, the statutory justification for that. And it's just, it's hard to find. It's hard to find because I don't think it exists. I think it's a regulatory invention. It could be changed tomorrow. Like many things, when Obama says he can't do stuff, there's a lot of things he could do tomorrow if he really wanted to. Yeah, I mean, and and if you got rid of that, let's say all the family members were counted in the immediate relatives category, Mm -hmm. or let's say there was just, you know, they were just allowed to come with the worker, you could double the number of employment-based green cards issued to workers immediately. I think you would actually triple it, because here's how the math works. Uh, the average family size for an immigrant family is three. Mm-hmm. That's, his, that's the historical average of the last 30 years, three. You know, some people have eight kids, some, no, many people have no kids. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's about three, a wife and a kid. And so you're, let's say you look at your Indian national. And uh, you want to get, you have a bachelor's degree, you're here on a work visa, and your employer wants to sponsor you for a green card. Today, you start that process today, when will you get your green card? The answer to that is an approximately, best guess, about 85 years, give or take a couple of years. Why? Well, right now in the line of EB3 Indian Nationals, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of about 250,000, maybe more people already ahead of you in that line. Uh, in any given year, there's only 40,000 green cards given to people with bachelor's degrees, except no country can get more than 7%. Yeah, which is another crazy Another thing. crazy rule. So you've got 7% of 40,000 going to Indian nationals. That's somewhere in the neighborhood of like 22, 23, 2400. Uh, and then you've got to break that down by three. So now you're looking at 700 to 800, maybe 900 families a year immigrate to America. Do the, I mean, it could be 240 years for a green card. Yeah. That, that, that makes I, no sense. That's, that's just I mean, stupid. Looking at, looking at the data from 2012, I see about 56% of all the employer-based green cards went to family members. Yep. And only 44% actually went to the workers themselves. And another sense. thing that is not talked about as much, but it's sort of an idea that I like, is exempting some proportion of the adjustments of status. 
So you have a lot of people who are on H-1Bs or, or F visas or other visas who are just into the employment-based green card. Mm-hmm. So there's about 126,000 a year into the employment-based green card system, yep. meaning only about 18,000 or so are new arrivals from outside the United States. Yep. So if you were to exempt some portion of the adjustment of status people from or numbers. to make it so that doesn't count against the cap, you could get virtually another doubling. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a brilliant idea. But, you know, adjustment of status started out as an administrative convenience for the government because yeah. we were making people go back to Europe or back, back home for every time they needed to get a green card. And so we started this process where they could get it here. And now it's become the accepted norm because who want, here's the other thing you could do. You could say you can file your adjustment of status now even though your priority date's not current. And then that would enable you and your wife to get your work permits. You would not be, after six months. You wouldn't be tied to the employer, so you could you could free up the flow of people in the marketplace. Absolutely. And that's another simple fix that could happen. And frankly, I believe that could happen administratively. Yeah, it's another so, thing I mean, that Obama could do to fix it tomorrow. Yeah, and that makes all of this jostling about things like the Skills Act and these other reforms um, just seem ir- irrelevant by comparison, really. Yep. I mean, there's a handful of small administrative things that they can do with the employment-based green card to make it a much more effective visa. Um, and then there's a lot of problems with the H-1B and other visas as well that need to be fixed in law. But, I mean, there's a lot that could be done now. Mm-hmm. Well, the, whole, we don't the, need... the whole idea that we turned away uh, 85,000 or 95,000 people from getting work visas because, up, oh, you didn't get picked in the lottery. Sorry, Charlie. That's yeah, insane. Wh- wh- yeah, what kind of what kind of uh, first world government has a lottery to determine who gets to come to the United States after some point? And I mean, work and just, work for jobs and work for jobs that that they are desired for by their employer. Yeah. So they're petitioning I mean, the their mark, employer. Yeah, I mean the mark of like a civilized country with an advanced economy is that people can work this stuff out themselves. You know, willing workers and willing employment employers in the marketplace. It's really like the bureaucratic regimes, you know, uh, the, uh, of the past and so other places that, that this reminds us of. It's like, you know, you had the, it's like those old World War II movies where some guy goes, era papira bitta, you know, <laughs> give me your papers and all this other n- nonsense. You, you said and that really rather convincingly, Alex. Hey, Alex, we've been joined by our attorney, Rocky Rockcliffe. Rocky, welcome to the show. Thanks. How was immigration court? Always fun as usual. Always oh, oh you, you know, Cato, because you're at Cato, you're going to love this, Alex. Our immigration court building, the, the guards there, the, the, net, the, guards, the well, security the, the service. The Federal Protective Service. They have does. decided that in order to get in the building to immigration court, you must have a U.S. government-issued ID. Or a, or a, <laughs> or a foreign-issued passport. Or a consular ID card will not suffice. Uh, what about all those people that uh, have the, asylum applications pending that can't get a passport from their home country but hasn't been pending yeah. long enough for them and to get the, a U.S. Part, ID document? They're in immigration court because they're undocumented. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's, we're about to sue them, sue them over that. But it's, I mean, another example of the stupidity Rain. that reigns throughout our immigration system. Yes. It's, it's truly thoughtless. And, you know, it's, it's some, one of the handful of things I agree with Mark Corian on, and there's only a handful, is that <laughs> the immigration small, system is – Probably about as complicated as the income tax system. Oh, I agree. I agree. Yep. Uh, there, there's some there's some great quotes from federal court judges calling it similar to was it Minos Lambert? Well, well Posner's got the famous quote. Of, uh, I, I can't remember what case it was. But the the complexities of the immigration nationality act are only surpassed by the complexities and nonsensical nature of the U.S. tax code. Yeah, so, just, I mean, those are, that's I mean that's that's you know, that's Richie Paz. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, 
the chief jurist, if you will, on immigration today. <laughs> um, but, you know, you've done such great – we're going to take a break here. We our last break, and then we'll come back for our final segment, Alex. Great. Thanks. Soy Charles Cook, jefe del Grupo de Abogados Cook Immigration Partners. Estoy en su lado. Con más de 20 años de experiencia con la ley de inmigración, conozco cómo ayudarle. Sé la ley y sé que alguna gente podemos ayudar. Llámanos hoy a las 404-816-8611. A las 404-816-8611. O visítenos en el internet. www.immigration.net With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio, the most listened to immigration podcast in the known universe. universe. Yeah. Alex, see, you're famous now. <laughs> They're listening to you oh, somewhere finally. else out there. <laughs> uh, now, here's a question I want to talk to you about. The border. There is this idea out there that Obama is not enforcing the law on the border or inside the U.S. I'm curious as to your take on this, because I'm sure uh, Krikorian may have mentioned that in your debate with him this last week or so. He used air quotes around debate, debate just FYI. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the... Um, this administration makes it tough to get a lot of the data that we need to actually determine whether the president is strictly enforcing laws or not. But what's clear is that enforcement on the border has been ramped up quite a bit um, in the last uh, six years or so. So you have the, you know, deport uh, the removals or returns with consequences from people uh, uh, captured on the border increasing. A lot of returns deep into Mexico. A lot of the people captured trying to enter the border are put through administrative proceedings, whereas years ago they were just sort of returned on a bus. Instead, they go through, you know, uh, administrative procedures where their identity is recorded. So you see a lot of little stepped-up enforcement in that way. Uh, the government estimates they're capturing about 80% of people who capture, uh, attempt to cross the border at any given time. In That's the last probably more years. than they've captured ever, is my guess. And, and, I, and I would guess the reason why it is is, you know, Partly because enforcement is a little bit more comprehensive at the border, but also because fewer people are coming. That's, I mean, that's, have, that's, that's, that's the unspoken thing, that's isn't the it? the unspoken yeah. truth. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you've got uh, you know, cross-border flows that are equal to what they were in the mid-'70s in terms of total numbers. So, of course, a massively ramped-up Border Patrol is going to be more effective under such a circumstance. But it's because of the economy. It's not because of... Uh, any kind of changes that have been made to the government. But then the issue of, like, internal enforcement is an interesting one. So we've seen the percentage of all um, uh, removals that have been from the interior of the United States decrease a lot since 2011. Uh, however, um, we've also seen the, a, large, uh, a large number of people who are deported since Obama's uh, administration 
from the interior of the United States. We also see programs like Secure Communities, which was started in March of 2008, mm-hmm. but really ramped up under this administration. We also see the bed quota be put in place oh. uh, during this administration, which is sort of a bad thing. So the data is, like, really mixed. Do you count only the removals of people who are captured on the border, or do you count people who are moved from the interior of the United States? And it seems like interior enforcement has decreased in the last couple of years, you know, from since 2011. But border enforcement has really increased a lot. And I think we can view these two types of enforcement as substitutes and not complements. Okay. Now, one of the interesting things about that whole enforcement mentality is we – because, you know, we we go to court. We we see this every day. One of the reasons I think you see a decrease in physical deportations is because immigration courts have literally ground to a halt. Literally ground to a halt. I mean, that's not – Literally. Are you aware of their computer problems? I have not heard of that. This, this is classic. Problem. Okay, so on April 12th, uh, their Fortran-based computer system, I don't know what else it's based on. It's Cobalt. Cobalt yeah. Fortran-based <laughs> system <laughs> literally <laughs> stopped working. And it was just down. And their entire the – t- the court, you actually have a hearing. It's recorded in their system. So they cannot have hearings on – they couldn't have hearings that week on their case. So they restore the system to the data as of April 12th. But since April 12th, they have not been able to put in a single new case, reset cases that could be heard, or even listen to the recordings of old cases to right. find out what was going on. Yep. So for a month that's now, like a That's like a story you'd hear out of the Soviet Union. It, it is. It's stunning. <laughs> it's like, sorry, comrade, we couldn't grow any food this week because the computer broke. <laughs> that's, I love that's it. Exactly, that's exactly. It's sorry, classic. Comrade, think about that. But even before that, you, somebody of my clients, would, they would be arrested because of secure communities. They're driving while Latino here in mm-hmm. Georgia. They get pulled over for a tag light is out. You know, you probably didn't even know you had a tag light. Yeah. Uh, and so they get pulled into Gwinnett County Jail. ICE says, okay, you've been here for 15 years. You've got a wife and kids. Uh, great. We're going to put you in immigration court proceedings. We'll let you know when your court hearing date is. Right now in Georgia, that's a year and a half. Right. You will not get wow. a court hearing for a year and a half. <laughs> Actually, you won't get a notice for a well, year and a half, yeah. and that'll be a year and a half later before you have a hearing. So you have right. two to three years right. before you actually have your very first hearing on the case. Of consequence. And I, I think also, too, part of the reason the interior enforcement is down is because cases – obviously, there's a huge backlog of cases. And uh, I can't remember exactly I'm – sor- I'm not going to source this correctly, but it was from the perspective that – more and more aliens uh, are represented by counsel now in immigration court. And yes. the tone of the article was that it was, seemed like it was a bad, bad thing. Like, why are we giving these people counsel? <laughs> Deport them now. But absolutely, you insert attorneys into the mix and people's, people are going to exercise their rights and, and it's going to make things take longer. And, and that's not uh, anybody's fault but the systems. I mean, yeah. it's just more evidence that the system is completely broken and does not work. Uh, the, the way it was intended to work, and, and, and it has disastrous consequences not only for individual families but, you know, uh, disastrous economic consequences as well. You've got the, yeah. the hiring of immigration judges. They had a hiring freeze about two, three years ago. Mm-hmm. They've gone from 287 down to 252, 50, 52 like judges. That, yeah. So they've decreased the number of judges. At the same time, the number of cases in the system has increased. When you read the studies out of the Syracuse University, the track folks, Exponentially, you know, 380, 400,000 cases pending in a system. You, you go to your first hearing two years later, your final hearing might not be for two more years on right. your case. You know, it's, it, it really says something about the nature of government when they have a hard time ruining people's lives efficiently. <laughs> <laughs> that and, was you know, literally the, one of the best things <laughs> I've ever <great>. heard. <laughs> 
and, and, and this is just, it's just more evidence. They try to ramp up one portion of enforcement. They don't increase the number of judges to go along with it, which would also grant some leniency for people. And, of course, it, it, it grounds the entire thing to a halt. I mean, who has the incentive to fix this system? It's certainly not the bureaucrats themselves. Well, and it even really gets worse. Now you have some lawyers who want to put anybody who walks in their office who has 10 years in the U.S. and a child into deportation prison so they can eventually get a work permit, even though they're not going to win their case four or five years from now because they figure out four or five years of the work permit. So now you have an abuse of the system. Right. Or, lawyer, or, or it gets even better, Alex, because ICE will not take you. So if you walk in your, your ICE's office and say, I'm undocumented, I'd like to be in deportation proceedings, they go, go away. Yeah. We don't have time to deal with you. Well, that's because it doesn't it doesn't come into their system the way their their budgetary incentives want them to. Right. They want people to come into the system through secure communities, through these local So they can uh, justify those systems. So they can justify those systems, and so they can obviously try to fill their, like, well, oh, man, we got a new body. we we got one of 34,000 for the night. Good to go. And the I other mean, abuse yeah. you get is then people are applying for asylum with right. crappy, really baseless asylum cases so they can get put into prison so they can apply for cancellation. So the inadequacies of the system, the incompetency of, of the workers, causes increased use of the system so that people can take advantage of the, the one benefit that might be left. It's, right. it's, it's remarkable how the system is literally eating itself alive. And that's what happens when you have a poorly functioning system that is just so restrictive for so many people. Of course, they're going to try to find any loophole possible to get in. And that's why you see, I think, some of these asylum cases that are clearly uh, not legitimate. But, you know, what other option do a lot of these folks have? It's sort of like you back them up into a corner and then we're surprised when they try to jump the wall. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly. I mean, you, you, you literally don't. Uh, and this whole idea, oh, I can't believe they're doing this. What's there not to believe? <laughs> What's there not to believe? This makes yeah. this is perfect. It's a perfect economic answer to what they're doing. Right. Absolutely. I mean, if you and I or anybody else are trying to come from a Central American country, like uh, Guatemala, for instance, coming to the United States, we face a six hundred percent increase in wages merely by moving here and working. Right. Uh, and there's no and there's almost no way for a low skilled worker who doesn't have family in the United States to come here. There is no way. I mean, it's, I mean, it's there, why there's, there's no way. It's why I mean, they could get lucky with a guest worker visa for 11 months, but we know how messed up those are. You know, they, they could get the one out of 10,000, but uh, the chances are slim. So, of course, they try to come in any way possible. It's why we had basically zero immigration from the African subcontinent, because yeah. there's no way for those folks to get here until the lottery. Right, and there, and really, if you look at the lottery usage, the vast majority of the lottery it's usage African. is African, and that's been the way that eighty percent of Africans have come to the U.S. in the last twenty-five years. Mm-hmm. It's for the lottery, which is another stupid way to run an immigration system. And let's based have, on luck. Let's base it on luck. Anything based on a lottery is just evidence that the system is not working and is just in, in dire need of any kind of reform of loosening up. I would argue. So, Alex, here's my question to you: Where are we going to go from here? What is your prognostication? <laughs> on it, because I give my prostigation all the time on the show, and I like to see how accurate or inaccurate I am. <laughs> well, uh, I uh, I don't have much confidence in my predictions about specific pieces of legislation, but let me put it this way: I think we're only going to see movements in the future to liberalize immigration, to increase the numbers uh, going forward with legislation, and I think we're only going to see movement toward regularizing in some fashion or another by removing the bars or through other methods the unauthorized immigrants who are here. And I really think we've hit a high water mark in 2013 with the enforcement stuff. I don't think that we're going to see anything more crazy 
than what we saw enforcement-wise in the 2013 bill. Okay. You mean the extra $50 billion to buy Sikorsky <laughs> helicopters in the El Paso uh, yeah, the, the doubling of Border Patrol yeah. and, you know, the internal enforcement stuff like E-Verify, a lot of that stuff is now under more criticism and more fire than it ever was before. And I, just, I don't think we're going to see anything worse than that uh, coming forward for a while. I mean, all the talk now amongst these Republicans is, we will give you a break in, you know, remove the three- and ten-year bars, a break in legalization, and we get more legal immigration in return. Like, that's where the conversation is right now, and I see it maintaining along those lines going forward. Because Republicans have realized that there is a fault line amongst their political opposition. It took them 50 years too long to realize this, but there was a real tension amongst a lot of Democrats about, you know, with labor unions opposing legal immigration going forward, and uh, support for legalization, on the other hand. And the Republicans, I think, are finally starting to realize that they can exploit this. Yeah. Both for good policy and for their political gain. Yeah, and hopefully they will. And I think think that's shown by the primaries around the country with only one primary, maybe one in Nebraska, too. We'll see today how that turns out. Probably not good for the anti-immigration guy. Um, At the end of the day, this is no longer an issue that GOP right-wingers are going to argue and win on. Yep. No, absolutely. And with that, you've got... You've got a situation in the country where you've got about 14%, 13% of us who are foreign-born, and you've got another 13% or so who are the children of immigrants. Right. And as that increases in the future, it's just going to be politically untenable to blame immigrants for uh, all of your problems and to scapegoat them for everything. Alex, it's been awesome having you on the show today. I definitely want to do this again. It's been great having you with the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. Until next Thank you week, very everybody. much. Anytime. Thank you, Alex. Have we'll a great day. Later. You too, guys. This Bye. is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.